Well, if you'll turn with me and stand to your feet as we read Romans chapter 7, verse 1 through 6. And Romans 7 says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he has lives, as long as he lives. <laughs> for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then... If while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. You may be seated. So Paul has just finished in chapter 6. Hammering home, well, he's not really finished because this is just a continuation of the argument that started in, in chapter 6, verse 1, that we should not go back into sin because we are dead to sin, that we've, been, we've died to the law. And the, the key for us as believers, and, and we see this a, a little in Romans chapter 6, but in chapter 7 here, we really see the key for our freedom from sin and its reign in our life is union with Christ. So this morning, my title, which is a question, is Are You United with Christ? Are you united with Christ? Because if we are not united with Christ, then we aren't free from sin. That's what Paul is saying, that in our union with Christ, like we see in chapter 6, the first half there, we are united in Him with our baptism. That, that baptism signifies to the world that we have died with Christ and that we are raised up with Christ. Right? We see that. And then, so that's the first analogy that Paul uses. Then the second analogy is slavery. He's saying, you were slaves of sin. Sin ruled over you. But now you are slaves of God. So we've translated kingdoms. We've been moved from the kingdom of Satan and sent to the kingdom of God and righteousness. So now he's going to use one more analogy. And that's why we see the question, or do you not know? You know, if you, if you look back at chapter 6, he uses that question multiple times. In verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And then he says, uh, sorry, I'm, verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience? Because, so, right before Paul gives an analogy that can help us understand why 
our union with Christ is so important and our death to sin, he asked this question. Like, you should know this. And why does he say they should know this? He says, or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So, whether he was speaking specifically and only to Jews here, we're not sure. But we do know that the, church, the early church, what scriptures did they have? They had the Old Testament. They, they did have these letters that were circulating. Um, but generally, the Old Testament was the scriptures for them at that time. So, whether they were all Jews or not in this, in this case, and I don't believe they were, I believe that a large chunk of them may have been um, here in Rome. But So because of that, they should know the law. And, and what should they know about the law? We see that in the second half. That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. So what's he saying? When we're dead, the law has no power over us. Despite what some people want to say, you know, uh, I think I mentioned this, there was a, a man who, I'm trying to remember if it was Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, or um, another translator, Tyndale, I can't remember which one, but the, the, church, the Catholic Church, year, hundred, I think a couple hundred years after his death, went and dug up his bones and burned them. Do you think he felt that? <laughs> did did their, their justice seem to actually affect him? No. Guess what? He's in heaven with the Lord. It didn't affect him one bit. And so in the same way, the jurisdiction of this world, the, the reign of the United States of America does not affect us when we're dead. And in the same way, when we die to the law, when we are dead, that, that jurisdiction is no longer over us. We don't have to worry about its reign in our lives. And then to prove this point, so the main point today is that union with Christ in His death enables us to be released from the requirement of the law. So again, union with Christ in His death enables us to be released from the requirement of the law. This is really important for us because there are many who believe that we, we become more and more united with Christ as we are believers. That we're actually not fully united with Christ until we're with Him. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is clearly saying that we are united with Christ when we are born again. And that is extremely important because if we think that we become more and more united with Christ, what does that mean? That means that we have to work our way into union with Christ. That only as we pursue God, we can become more united with Him. But, but if we're not united with Him, then we have no power over sin. And that's what Paul is saying. Why? We saw that again. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, verse 12 of chapter 6. That means that it doesn't have to reign. Why? Because we're united with Christ in His death. So Paul, to further say, look, this is absolutely true, he goes to the law. And he goes to an example all of us know, marriage. 
What he's saying is this, verse 2, For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. This word while is very important. It's used multiple times in this section. So in the time period that he is living, she is bound by the law to him. But if her husband dies, so this is an if-then statement, if you think about that. There's no then here, but we could put that in easily. Why? Because it says, but if her husband dies, then she is released from the law concerning the husband. So if, if he dies, she's no longer bound to her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, so another if statement, and we actually have the then already there. So if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called or will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. I think this is really important because in the church today, there's this false belief that marriage is something that can be terminated so quickly, right? We all hear the statistics that the divorce rate in the church is equal or worse than the world. Why? Because people are ignoring Scripture. And I, th- I believe, why, why in the world does Paul not have an exception here? Did you notice, was there an exception in this section? Did he say, well, except in this case? No, he said death is the only thing that separates the bond that God has created. And if we don't believe that, let's turn to... So we're going to look at Paul first. I think that if we don't understand that, this, that death is only the only way to be separated in marriage then we don't understand the point that Paul's about to make in verse 4. So I want to make sure that I make a quick overview of what I believe Scripture says about this issue. So if we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 10. So Paul is talking about marriage. He's talking about how it's better to, he believes, better to be unmarried and serving the Lord because of the need to care for one another when you're married. He says, this is not from the Lord, this is from me. But here in verse 10 he says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. That's really important. That the wife should not leave her husband. That's pretty straightforward, but let's keep going. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So he's not, is he giving an exception here either? No, he's not. And he he continues, he says, And the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. So this is his opinion. But we should say if it's here in Scripture that's, that this is inspired by God. He says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, she must not divorce, he must not divorce her. 
And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So just because your, your husband or wife is unbelieving, does not, that's not a reason to leave them. And what do unbelieving men and women do? Sin. I think that's really important to remember. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife through, is sanctified through her believing husband. So what, what's he saying here? I'm not really going to get into it, but I, I think he's saying their relationship with God magnifies God, and eventually God gets a hold of their, their spouse because they see the love of Christ in them. Even though they deserve the opposite, they're treated with love. Yet, verse 15, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or, or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So what's he saying? Is he saying, if they leave, then you can move on? No, because that would contradict what he said already, right? He's saying, if, if your husband or wife is an unbelieving person and they want to walk out, you're not to like follow them around. Harass them. That's what he's saying. That, that you don't have to stay there. But that doesn't mean that you're free. Because if you look further down, he, he goes on to talk about um, more issues here. And then he, he comes back in verse 39 of the same chapter. He says, A wife, this is exact same language that he uses in Romans. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So, if he's released her, why, to, to remarry, why would he say what he said in verse 39? It's complete contradiction. And so, I don't believe Paul has any exception. So, now the question is, well, are Paul and Jesus... On the wrong, are they in opposition to one another? Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 19. And this isn't the main point, but I feel like if we don't get this, we won't understand why the main point is so important. So Matthew chapter 19 says... Verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking. So they, they didn't want the real answer, right? When you test someone, you're hoping they're going to say something so you can attack them. So they come to him and they say, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So he's like, Is there a reason that we can? And what does Jesus say? He says, Have you not read? So he's pointing, he's saying, this is what the scripture says. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So what, what's, Paul, what's Jesus quoting? Genesis. He's going back to the very beginning. God instituted marriage. It was not Adam going out and getting on Christian Mingle 
I'm being a little facetious, or uh, eat and mingle, um, trying to find a, a mate, right? No, God, actually it says in Genesis that God brought Eve to him. Just like a, a father brings his daughter to the husband. So God is bringing her to him. God put them together. That's what makes marriage strong and indestructible. God's joining of them together. And that's, that's the thing what he says. So, verse 6, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So who is the one to separate a marriage? According to this, God alone. And I would say, from the context of Paul, how does God separate a marriage? Death. That is the only time when marriage is separated, in death. Well, there's, there's what's considered a, a, an exception clause here. So they ask a question. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He, they're referring to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24. And we're going to go look at that. Because I, I don't want us to just stay in the New Testament. I want us to see the whole thing there. So, why did he do that? And he said to them, because of the softness of your heart. Y'all were just so soft towards the Lord. No, because they were hard in their heart. They, they wanted it their way. So they, God, it says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. So Jesus quotes Genesis, and then he says, from the beginning, it wasn't this way. From the beginning. He says, and I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except, or in the case of immorality, in this section, that word should be translated fornication, which is sex outside of marriage and before marriage. And marries another, commits woman commits adultery. And in response to this, if, if this exception clause was really what people make it out to be, why did the di disciples say in verse 10 to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Isn't that, that's a pretty strong statement. They're married. We know P Peter was married. And he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. And he talks about eunuchs from there on. So, what's he saying? He's, if it's so hard, that exception clause would seem to be a pretty good, you know, I, I can fall back on this. The reason I don't believe this is true, this exception clause is what people believe it to be, is because you, if you look at, with me at Matthew chapter 1, And Joseph, 
he found out that Mary was pregnant, but an angel came to him after the fact. But this is what it says here. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, betrothed, the key word, betrothed, to Joseph, he, before they came together, she was found to be child by the Holy Spirit, with child. Okay, so this is before they came together. This is before marriage. And Joseph, her husband? I'm confused. I thought they were just betrothed. I think this is important. He's calling her her husband because by the law, that's what, it was, that's what happened. And we're going to see that. Being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. That is the same word. Send, send her away is the same word that's translated divorce in Matthew chapter 19. And I believe that Jesus is referring here, when He says He gives this exception for immorality, He is talking about what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 22. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Which, by the way, comes before chapter 24, which we will also look at. So Deuteronomy 22... In verse 13, If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but when I came near to her, I did not find her a virgin, then the girl's father and mother shall take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city of the gate. So, she has to prove... This man is, what is this man trying to do? He's trying to get a divorce. He's trying to send a woman that he has now married, he was betrothed to, he's trying to send her out because she's not who she said she was. She was not a virgin is what he's, he's dealing with. So his parent, her parents had to prove that. And... Verse 16, the girl's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, but he turned against her. And behold, he has charged her with shameful deeds, saying, I did not find your daughter a virgin, but this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the garment before the elders of the city. So the elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give it to the girl's father because he publicly defamed a virgin of Israel. And she shall remain his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. So she probably doesn't want to be with him anymore because he's just publicly shamed her and her family. But what does it say here? He can't divorce her. Because he has wrongly accused her of sin, of fornication. That's what what they're talking about here. But, verse 20, If the charge is true, the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and men of her city shall stone her to death, because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge evil from among you. Am I 
condoning? Should we do, be doing that now? No, I don't, I don't believe so. But in the same way here, we see that if the charge is true, how is that marriage dissolved? Death. Just as before, that man, it said that he could not divorce her all his days. I don't know how more clear we could get there. And then he, he deals with other issues of, of rape, actually. And it says, if a man is found lying with a married woman, so this is actually adultery, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge evil from Israel. And if there is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, so in the city, people are around, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's, what's the word? Verse 24, wife. She's betrothed. She's engaged to this man, but she's referred to as his wife. You see that? Thus you shall purge evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged, or betrothed, we could say the same word, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death, for just as a man rises up against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. Do you see the difference here? She, she couldn't defend herself in the, in the field, so she's not held liable because this man used his strength to overcome her. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. Now, so we're going to see. So that, those are both betrothed women, both betrothed to a husband, being called the wife of that man. But in verse 26 it says, You should have knew, oh, sorry, verse 20, 28. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, this is a key, not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. Do we see the difference here? I'm not, I'm not condoning, and I don't believe Scripture is condoning rape in any way, but do you see the difference? This man who is betrothed, he only gets out of the marriage in either her death or his death. And so I believe that what we see here is what, what he's talking about. This woman, what Jesus is talking about when, you, when we consider this exception, he's talking about this specific law. He's, he's referencing Deuteronomy 22. He's saying, if you marry someone or you are engaged to someone, as the law says, if you're betrothed and you find out like my father, Joseph, my earthly father, who technically isn't my father, but like Joseph, that your wife is pregnant, then you are free 
to divorce. But that, that divorce that sent her away referred. It would have been shameful even for a betrothed woman to be sent away to say, I'm going to break this engagement off. Because betrothal in that time was very serious. And I want us to read real quick. There's a, a guy that I like to read. His name is Alfred Edersheim. He's a old Jewish scholar. He was trained to be a rabbi and he became a Christian. And he said this about the betrothal of Joseph and Mary. So he's talking about there's, there were two modes of, of betrothal. Some gave a lot of money to, of a dowry to say, she's now mine. She is now my wife. There's still a ceremony to happen, but we have this. And so he says, Whichever of the two modes of betrothal may have been adopted in the presence of witnesses, either by solemn word of mouth and due prescribed formality with the added pledge of a piece of, pay, piece of money, however small or of money's worth for use, or else by writing. There would be no sumptuous feast to follow. So that's after the, the actual marriage ceremony. And the ceremony would c- conclude with some benediction or blessing. This, the betrothal wasn't uh, like we see today, you know, let's post this amazing Instagram video for those of you that are of Instagram age. Um, let's let's show this video of me proposing to my my girlfriend or or boyfriend. Well, they do that today, unfortunately. Uh, but anyways, I'm not going to talk. <laughs> but um, women asking men is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the completely messed up. Anyways, beyond that. Uh, so with that being the case, they have betrothed, and it was a ceremony that the family was at. It wasn't like, oh, let's go, let's take, I'm going to take my wife out into the middle of nowhere to the woods in some beautiful spot and propose to her. No, that's today's. That wasn't back then. It was a family affair because you were joining families. You weren't just joining your wife. You were going to be close to your in-laws because oftentimes you shared homes. How terrible would that be in this day and age? (laughs) Anyways, we're so individualistic. Anyway, so that the benediction happened, and then, and once the whole thing concluded by that benediction, they would drink a cup of wine, and it was tasted in turn by the betrothed, by both. From that moment, He's speaking specifically about Mary. He said, From that moment, Mary was the betrothed wife of Joseph. Their relationship as sacred as if they had already been wedded. Any breach of it would be treated as adultery. Nor could the bond be dissolved except as after marriage by regular divorce. So, They were treated as a married couple. And that's what I believe Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a person who was betrothed, found out that his fiancée or 
her fiancé had cheated on them and that there was illicit sex outside of marriage, then that betrothal could be broken. He's not talking about marriage. Because if he was, then we have an issue between Paul and Jesus. Because Paul does not give any exception. And if we believe that Scripture is infallible, we can't, we can't pit Jesus against Paul and say, well, Paul just assumed that they knew about this. Paul would not have... They would not have had Matthew's letter or Mark's letter. Those are the only two that, that mention this so-called exception. And so I, and I see from the Old Testament, we, we have, when Christ, God puts them together, no man can separate. It doesn't matter what the laws of our land say is legal. What does God's Word say? There are many things that our laws in this country allow us to do, but as Christians... We don't do it, right? And so in the same way, and the reason, the reason this is such a big issue to me and I believe to the Lord is because the emphasis that we see in chapter 17 or chapter 7 of, of Romans is based on one major principle, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's turn there. Because I believe we miss out on this. A lot of people, they deal with the, the, what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage, but they don't deal with why God hates divorce. And this is why I believe He does. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, be subject to your own life, why, husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as you want to. Is that what it says? No. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. There's this idea that if you submit to a, a husband, you're going to submit to what they call now toxic masculinity. I want to tell you something. If your husband loves the Lord, that will not happen. Right? Men, we should not be loving our wives based on our own feelings or what we want. That's what our, honestly, that's what our society says. You know, you're going to get a wife to clean for you and, and take care of your home and, and, oh, she can go and work too and y'all can just spend time together. It's not really a, a, a union. But we're called to care for one another, to love one another. And honestly, I think it's much harder for a man to lay down his life to give up his desires, and I'll be careful here, it is hard to submit. It is hard to be willing to submit to some things that men, myself included, demand. And they, they shouldn't be. As Christians, we should seek, as it says here, to give ourselves up as men for our wives, to care for their every need. But it's based on 
the example of Christ in the church. That's why it's such a big deal to God. Marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. So if a man has a wife who has sinned against him, and he decides, you know what, this isn't worth it. Does that, is that proclaiming the gospel? No. That's the thing. Christ didn't say, oh, sorry, you're an adulterous bride, I'm going to give up on you. Christ came and died. The whole Old Testament constantly refers to the people of Israel, God's people, as an adulterous people. The moment they get out of Egypt, what are they whining for? I want to go back into slavery. We talked about that last time. But God continued to pursue His people, and He pursued us. He didn't leave us alone because we sinned against Him. In the same way, our marriage is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And that's why I have such an issue with my brothers and sisters who think there's no big deal to this issue. Well, what if? What if this situation happens? Let's build our theology on what ifs, okay? Because that's really a strong foundation. Let's build a straw man up and then stand on top of that and hope that that helps our argument. It's not true. What does the Bible say? Not what if such and such happens. There is no opportunity, I believe, for believers to divorce. There's none. I know that is not popular. It's not popular. But are we going to preach the gospel with our marriage? Or are we going to preach another gospel? Because that's what this is about. What does it say? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Let me ask you men, have you ever had a problem loving yourself? No. And women, you would say the same thing about yourself. We don't have a problem taking care of ourselves. Right? We don't think, oh man, I'm hungry. I, I should probably not eat though. Or, man, I really want that, but I have the money, but I, I mean, I don't need, I, yeah, I'm not going to get that. No, we don't have a problem taking care of our own bodies. In the same way, we shouldn't, oh man, i got to take care of my wife. Oh, so terrible. Right? I'm sure I'm going to hear this all ne- this next week when I try to be selfish. <laughs> uh, no, Megan is very loving, more so than me. Uh What does it say? He who loves his own wife loves himself. We're one. 
That's what it is about. When we are united together, we're one. In the same way, we're going to see in, in Romans chapter 7, when we are one with Christ, what is He doing? He's loving Himself and loving us because we have been joined, united with Him. You say in verse 29 to confirm, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Paul bases everything here in Ephesians on this relationship. What marriage is pointing to, he says, because we are members of his body, for this reason, he's using the same thing that Jesus quoted in Matthew chapter 19. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Our relationship in marriage is a picture to the world of Christ's love for the church. When the world says, man, you need to dump that woman, or you need to dump that man, say, no, I love him, I love her. That's what Christ did for us. Does that mean that we are constantly putting ourselves in a position to be beaten or, or what? No, I, I believe there is a, a scriptural basis for short-term separation. Not, I'm not talking about divorce, though. I don't, I don't believe there's any, any ground for that, but I don't believe that's going to be an issue in my life. And I, I, I know that because Meg and I have the same conviction about this. And this is why when you seek marriage, you need to find someone who will not consider divorce. Someone who will not even talk about divorce with you. Who wants someone who doesn't even want to watch a show that makes divorce look good? I know this is a hard thing to think about. There are so many movies out there that, oh, that they deserve to be love. No, actually, they deserve to be with the one that God united them with in the first place. And it's the same for us. We are to proclaim the gospel in our marriage because it glorifies God, glorifies Christ. Because when somebody says, how in the world do you love that woman? Say, well, Christ loved me that way. How can I not love her? Or if someone says, how in the world could you love that man? Ugh. He is so demanding. What it, you say, Christ loved me. How could I not love him? I'm just loving him like Christ loved me. And that goes to the church. How can you love that brother or sister in Christ? I don't know. But through Christ's love in me, I, I can love someone who's treated me or talked about me. Or Our understanding of the gospel is essential for our understanding of ourselves and, and what love really is. It's not about how good we feel or... Or the, you know, I, I fell in love, but, you know, our, I don't love you anymore. How many times have you heard someone say that that was the reason they're going to get a divorce or, or leave their husband or wife? 
I just don't have those feelings anymore. It's like, I didn't know marriage was only about feelings. Is, is that going to be our, our response to God in heaven when I loved you, but I mean, I just stopped feeling that way, so I stopped following after you. We shouldn't have that. So, back to Romans chapter 7. That was a complete side note, but I, I believe if, if we don't believe that death is the only thing that separates marriage, we can't really understand verse 4 and following. Because Paul is basing his argument on that belief. Paul is basing his belief that death is the only thing that's, that sets us free from the law or releases us from the law there in verse 2. So, she can only be released when her husband dies. But in verse 4, he says, therefore. So in light of this analogy, in light of what I just said about the married woman who is bound by the law to her husband being set free in the death of her husband, in light of this, my brethren, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So, just as the married woman was bound while living, while her husband was living, or the, the husband to the wife while she is living, but if, if she had went out and joined herself to another, let it say it says she would be called an adulteress. But, that's a big but there, but if, at the middle of verse 3, if her their spouse has died, then they won't be bound. So, we are freed, or that union with Christ that we have in His death enables us to be released or freed from the requirement of the law. Why? Because we've died with Him in His body. That's what He's saying here in verse 4. You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. The law no longer rules over you. It does not reign over you as it did in the past. You are no longer under the reign of sin and death. And what what was the purpose of this? And that's what Paul gets to here. He says, You died to the law through the body of Christ, so that, I know I I keep hammering home this, Paul uses this all the time. It says, so that, verse 4, so that you might be joined to another. God did not separate us, set us free from the law so we could be free in the sense of doing whatever we want, being whatever we want. No, it's so that we would be joined to another. Who? To him who was raised from the dead. Who is that? Lazarus? Is that who we're to be joined to? No, Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting at. We, are di- we die through the body of Christ and we are joined to him. We are a spouse to him. We are married to him. We become the bride of Christ. His church. 
And one day we will stand at the marriage supper of the Lamb, robed in white and prepared for Him. The, the marriage that began all marriages in Genesis, that complete perfection that they experienced before sin, will be our experience with Christ in heaven. What a joy. I, I don't know how we cannot see how great that is. The only marriage that's going to be happening in heaven is between the bride of Christ and Him. In this life, our marriage is a picture of what it's going to be like. Can you imagine if we were sinless and our husbands were perfectly attentive to us for the women and, and our wives were perfectly attentive to us as men? My wife is pretty good, but... She has her areas just as I have my areas. <laughs> She's probably saying, Amen. No. <laughs> uh, so we are joined to Him, Christ. And that's not the end. That's not the only purpose. The ultimate purpose, it says here, is at the very end, He says, In order that, again, I, I keep hammering home. I don't want you to believe this because I'm saying I want you to see it in the Word. I, don't, I want you to see here, and when he says in order that, he says so that, it's the same idea, the purpose that we might bear fruit for God. So our, we die to the law through the body of Christ. That's our, kind of our sub-point. And he says we are joined to Christ. That's one of the purposes of it. But the ultimate purpose is so that we would be bearing fruit for God. Are you bearing fruit for God? Because if we aren't, then verse 7 is still true for us. Because or, or verse 5. He says, For while we were in the flesh, we were still living under the law, the sinful passions, our sinful desires, which were aroused by the law, or stimulated, or or brought even greater um, desire, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. See that contrast here? If you are in Christ, if you have died to the law, you have been joined to Christ, united with Christ. And because of that, you should be bearing fruit for God, for His glory and His honor. But if that is not true, you're still in the flesh is what verse 5 is talking about. Because here he says, you know, we were in the flesh. That's past tense. If you are a believer, you were in the flesh. When he talks about the flesh, he's not talking about those desires that you have to overcome as a believer. He's talking about you were still in the reign of flesh. You were under his kingdom, his sin, and the, the sinful passions that you feel... You felt then they were brought on by rebellion against God and His law. You, you saw the law and you're like, okay, I'm going to break that one. I'm going to break that one. I, it's, it's just like our kids. Those of you who have had kids or have seen kids, you tell them, no, don't do that. What are they going to do? What's the first thing they're going to do? My mom can attain, 
uh, can say this about me. I was told not to jump into the puddle, and guess what? I stayed out of the puddle. No, I didn't. Actually, Thomas's mom can attest to this too, because one time she took me on a walk. She said, don't jump in any of the puddles, and I jumped in every single one of them. Because <laughs> I wanted to rebel against authority. And that's, that's the way it is. I remember I shared that story about Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say his name, um, and how the sin that, irrit- that bothered him the most was when he stole the pear off that man's tree, and he hated pears. But he wanted to do it because he wanted to steal. And he couldn't understand. He gained no benefit from stealing those pears. But he loved to do it. And that's the thing. When we are in sin, we want to break the law. If, if you ask most criminals, why did you do that? Eventually you get to the point, just, I wanted to do it. I, I wanted to do that because, I don't know, I, if you ask, I don't know why I did it. It's a mystery to me. But that's because we are rebellious against authority until we are transformed in union with Christ. So we're either bearing fruit for death. That's the thing. That is the difference. I love the Apostle Paul because he he is so good at showing us that it is of grace, but our lives will be transformed and we will bring fruit We are not called to be the same every day. We should be growing in grace. We should be growing and desiring to bring fruit to God. So since we were in the flesh, verse 5, but now, this is really, this is great news, but now we have been released. That's a reference back to verse 2 when it says she is released from the law concerning the husband. But now we have been released from the law, having died. So, so the question is, how have we been released by the law? Why? It says, having died to that which, by which we were bound. We died to that. We died to the law in Christ Jesus, in His body, through His body, We have died to the law. We have been raised up with Him. We are united, joined to Christ as His bride. So that... Again, I I told you I like Paul because he's very clear on what, why this happens. So we've died to that which we were bound, it's not just so that we can be doing whatever. So that, for the purpose of, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit. Or of, yes, of the Spirit. And not in the oldness of the letter. Do you see the freedom that comes 
We are no longer doing something because it's something we have to do. We're doing it because we want to do it. That is the difference between being under the law, bound by the law, and being under grace. We are no longer following God because we have to. This word for serve is the same word, it's the verb form of the word slave or servant. It's the same word in, in, in the Greek. So, we are now serving God in newness of the Spirit. What is he referring to? I believe he's referring to Ezekiel 36. I've quoted this many times, but I think we should actually look at it. So turn there with me. Ezekiel 36, verse 25 and following. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, over I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my laws. You see how this, this newness of the Spirit is the Spirit working through us. We are, it, it's not of us. It's the Spirit in us bringing about transformation of heart that we no longer want the things of this world. And when we do fall into sin, our heart breaks. Lord, why do I do this? What is wrong with me? Because before I was a Christian, I did not care that my mom said, don't jump in the puddle, and I jumped in all the puddles. I was having a good time. Or when somebody told me, don't eat those cookies because they're for later, or whatever it may be. But when Christ changed my heart, when I sinned, it tore me up. It convicted me, and it, it caused me to want to be with God. I realized that that sin was separating me, in a, in a sense, from God. And I need to deal with that. And I think one lie the devil constantly uses, you can't go to the God, you just fell. How many of you have felt that the devil entices you to sin? Oh, that'll be fun, that'll, that'll feel so good. And then immediately after you sin, it's like, oh, God won't listen to you now. You're, you're such a wicked person. How could God... Hear your prayer. I know I, I, I've experienced that. But in the newness of the Spirit, we realize that, yes, we've sinned. We, we don't desire to walk in sin anymore. We, we have an advocate with the Father. and we, we know that we can come to Him and experience forgiveness of sin and grace to follow Him. When we serve in the newness of the Spirit, what is it saying? The Spirit is empowering us, giving us the ability to follow God. This is a part of the new birth, brothers and sisters. And so if we, if we are not serving in the new spirit, if we, if we experience this sense that we are supposed to do something because everybody else is doing it, and not because God's Word is 
our love and God's work in our life is changing our desires, then it might be that we're still serving in the oldness of the letter. So are you united with Christ? Do you realize that you have died to sin? That you have been translated into the kingdom of righteousness? That by the grace of God you have been transformed? I'm not saying that we're perfect. What I'm saying is our desires are changing. Our our heart has been transformed. And we are a new man in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. I don't want to serve in the oldness of the letter. It's so easy for us to go back to a legalistic lifestyle. Right? It's so easy for us to to fall into that trap that, you know, if I do this, this, and this, I'll be okay. If I go to church every Sunday, um, if I made a prayer once, if I uh, take communion, if I uh, give to the poor, then I'll be okay. No. It's in Christ alone, by faith alone. These works are fruit of change. I, I don't give to the poor because I feel like, oh yeah, if I don't give to the poor, I'm, I'm going to... I give to the poor because I want to please God. I give to the poor because God gave to me. I was poor, wretched, filthy. But that's the Spirit in us. It... It motivates us. It, it's the true motivation of God because when we stand before the Lord, what is, what's it going to be said of us? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we'll say like Paul, I believe it was Paul who said, it was not I, but Christ in me. He is the hope of glory. And, it, and when we stand before Him, we will say, I was an unprofitable servant. You poured your life into me and and all I did was exactly what you asked me to do. God in us, doing the work in us. So, how do we respond to this message today? First, we need to ask ourselves a question. Are we united with Christ? Because if we aren't, if we have not been joined to Christ, if we have not been betrothed to Christ and made His bride, then we're not going to make it. Our union with Christ is essential to our salvation. And if we have been united with Christ, we should be bearing fruit. So, if you've been united with Christ and, and you feel like, Lord, I, I know my heart has changed, my desires have changed, and I, I don't want to do these things because of other people. I want to do them because I want to please you, but I don't feel like I have a lot of fruit in my life. Cry out. Lord, show me areas where I can surrender to you, areas where I haven't given you my all so that I can bear fruit to God and for God. And we're going to see a lot more in Romans chapter 12 and following. Paul really hammers home at, at, in light of 
our justification by faith in the work of finished work of Christ on the cross, His resurrection power in us, how to live, how to bear fruit. And so we'll really get into that when we get to, to chapter 12. But remember, we are called to bear fruit. If there is no fruit in our lives, then I don't believe we're united with Christ. We can look at the fruits of the Spirit. Lord, just go through that list prayerfully. Lord, what? I seem to be fairly patient, but not with my kids. <laughs> or not with uh, my brothers or sisters or whoever may be. Lord, help teach me to be patient. Remind me of your patience with me. Because it's all grounded in Christ. If we remember what Christ has done for us, then our mercy changes, our grace changes, our forgiveness changes, and our love changes. Because we remember what Christ did for us. And the fruit is truly of God. Because we are seeing what Christ did and we are seeking to be like Him. And as I always do, this message should further encourage us to share the gospel. Because there are people who are still in bondage. They're still trying to attain something, but not through Christ. So we should be sharing the gospel with others, seeking to see others that we encounter every day released from bondage from slavery to sin, from the reign of death. Because if we, are, if we love someone, we should seek to see others to experience what Christ has done for us. Because if He released us and we've experienced such great joy, it should be almost impossible for us to not share that with others. I pray that the Lord has encouraged you by this, by the fact that we have the Spirit within us if we are believers, um, working in us, joined with Him, and, and that we are no longer bound by the old man. We can actually serve the Lord in the Spirit. Next week, we're going to tackle a very controversial section of Romans chapter 7. The rest of it, actually. And I would encourage you this week, it is really important that you know what we're talking about because this section of, of Scripture, there's two well, three interpretations of this next part of Romans chapter 7. And we really need to get a grasp of what Paul's saying because when I share Sunday... We won't be able to get into the, everything that's in here, but I, w I really want to encourage you to, to read all of chapter 7 because Paul is continuing his argument from the first half of chapter 7 in the following section. So I would pray that, I, I hope that this week you would at least read, it, read Romans chapter 7 a couple times. It, it won't take that much time. And just meditate on, Lord, what does this mean? Because there's a lot of questions Honestly, I, I wish I had given you this 
before the new year, and then y'all could all bring some questions so that I could make sure they get answered, <laughs> or, or at least have an opportunity to answer them. Um, so, but I also would encourage you, if you do have any questions about anything that we read or things you're reading, to let me know, and if you're too afraid to talk to me, I don't know why, um, you could always put them in the offering box and I can answer them. So, I pray that the Lord has spoken to you, and we'll end with prayer. Did you have anything? Okay. Father, we thank you that we have been united with you, that you have joined us to yourself. You did all the work to bring us to you, to make us your bride. Lord, we're so thankful for that. We were filthy and nasty and dirty and why you would love us we don't we don't understand that lord but we just thank you for that we thank you that you came and died for us to bring us to yourself and i pray lord that we would see the importance of being united with you in your death and united with you in your resurrection power lord help us to live today in the newness of the spirit bearing fruit to you, Lord God. That's why you made us. You made us to glorify you, to see in you the greatest value, Lord. Lord, help us to find all that we need and want in you. Not in the things you give, not in the people we know, not in the things of this earth, Lord, but in you alone. Help us to know your love to experience that love and, and, Lord, to constantly seek to love you in the same way. We thank you, Lord, for this. We thank you for your calling upon us and pray that this week we would not only experience your love but share that love with the world around us. Just as when we first fell for the people that you gave us as our spouses, that we would just glow with that joy and knowledge that we have become united with Christ. We thank you for this, that you love us and pray that your glory would be in our lives, that we would live holy lives, lives that reflect the transformation that you've done in our hearts. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.